Good morning. The video left me a little emotional, actually. Uh, we, uh, from the college ministry, just would say thank you to all of you for supporting what we do. It was just exciting to see how those students are being used of the Lord all over the world. I would mention if you are a college student and it interests you uh, to consider going to one of our locations to share the gospel uh, with other students who are like you, who are studying, uh, are going to classes, but don't have as of yet the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ, I encourage you to consider going. Uh, Coming up in November, uh, we are going to have a couple of opportunities for you to hear about those projects. November 17th, uh, Breakaway Ministries is hosting their annual Go Conference, and Grace Bible Church participates in that every year. And then the Sunday prior to that in college class, uh, we're going to have an opportunity for you to hear from some people who are living long-term in all of these locations who can give you some information about what these projects will be like. So they're generally five to six-week projects. If you're a student in particular, we'd love to have you consider one of those. All right, if you have a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 15. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, Paul writes, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our pedagogue to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogue, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful to you for your word and how it brings life. We're grateful to you, above all, for your son, Jesus Christ, and how he came to bring us life eternal. Lord, I just thank you for the testimony of the uh, three, even in this video, along with the 40 others who went overseas last summer, how you used them to spread the word about Jesus Christ and his gospel to the world. I pray that you would raise up many more uh, from this congregation to go and do the same. Father, we pray as we study your word, you would help us to understand what it has to say, help us to believe it, know that it is true because it comes from you, and help us to obey it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, a couple of years ago, Shannon and I decided to go to a nice, fancy restaurant on our anniversary, as many of you, I'm sure, do. And uh, we went to the restaurant, and when we got in and we got seated, we noticed pretty quickly that our waiter was in training. He was a trainee. Now, uh, we decided we were not going to complain about the waiter. We understand it's a hard job, and the one or two experiments that I have had in attempting to wait tables uh, didn't end well. And so I know it's a tough job, and so we kind of were just going to go with the flow, enjoy our evening. We knew that the chef was not a trainee, and so the food was still going to taste good. And, uh, you know, he went through the course of the evening, and he did forget a couple of things on the menu, and, and uh, was a little bit slower than normal, but we were kind of letting it ride and not worrying about it too much. And About halfway through the meal, I got up uh, to go use the restroom, and on my way to the restroom, I had to pass through another room in the restaurant that was full of tables and people seated eating just like our room. And as I walked through the other room, I just happened to notice when I walked through that everybody in the other room was significantly older than I was. And uh, everybody in the other room looked like They had more money than I did, to be frank. And uh, I came back and sat down at my table and looked around at my room and happened to notice that everybody in there was about my age. People had kids. And I I looked over at Shannon and I said, I think they've put the low tippers with the trainee. I think that's what's happened. I think they have looked at us and they've made a decision that, you know, you're probably not going to bring in the level of income that we're looking for. And so we're going to put you over here and we're going to put this group over here. And it was, it was patently obvious. Now, we weren't offended. We didn't call the ACLU. We just laughed about it and went on with our meal. But it got me to thinking about the concept of making distinctions between people. Because I think as human beings, it's natural for us to want to make distinctions. We want to put ourselves in one group and perhaps others in another group. And it gives us a way of determining where do I fall on the pecking order? Am I at the top? Am I at the bottom? Am I somewhere in the middle? We make distinctions uh, based on all kinds of factors. For some, maybe it is we make distinctions based upon somebody's race or what nationality they are. Perhaps how much money they have, perhaps how tall they are, or uh, whether they are attractive, unattractive, perhaps if they're in a particular club that I'm not in, or I'm in a club that they're not in, and we make distinctions between people based upon criteria that we choose. I don't think it's always different within the Christian community. We have a tendency to want to make distinctions based upon our perception of who is spiritual and who is not. How do I determine another person's spirituality? Well, the easiest way to do that is to take a list of regulations or rules or practices that I hold to that you don't. So I'm wearing a tie this morning. Only a few of you are. Maybe that's an easy way I can distinguish myself. Do we send our kids to private school? Do we send our kids to public school? What kinds of music do we listen to? Do I only listen to KSBJ or do I listen to something else? Do I have a 45-minute quiet time and you only have a 15-minute one? And so we create a list of practices by which we can discern I'm spiritual and you're not quite as much. If you were a first century Jewish person, there was a very easy, simple test by which you could determine somebody's spirituality according to your list of rules. All right, first of all, you would look at a person and determine, is this person a Jew or a Gentile? 
right? If they were a Gentile, they were immediately inferior to you in terms of spirituality because they had not been given the covenants and the promises of God as lined out in the Old Testament. Now, if they were a Jew, you would then look at them and you would say, does this person keep the law? Not only does this person keep the law, but do they keep the law well? And in fact, the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus' day, the Pharisees had codified the law into about 600, just over 600 commands, 613 to be precise. And these 613 commands defined for them what a spiritual person looked like who was related to God well. And so there were all kinds of regulations about how you washed your hands before you ate about what you could touch and what you could not touch, about how you needed to make sacrifices and when you needed to make sacrifices, what made you clean, what made you unclean. And so they could look at these regulations and determine, are you spiritual or are you not? And so the law, which was given by God as a means for his nation to have a sense of his holiness and to have a sense of their own place before God, instead became a way for them to measure themselves when they looked at other people. Now that created a problem when Jesus came and Jesus died, paid the penalty for sin, and he rose again, and then the last words that Jesus commands his apostles are to go into where? All of the world and make disciples of all the nations, including the Gentiles. So now Jesus extends the promises of God to the Gentiles. Well, if you were a Jewish person in the first century, this created a real tension for you. How can a Gentile be related to God? Is it possible that they could do it apart from the Mosaic law that we see in the Old Testament? Is that a possibility? And so there were men and women among the Jewish nation that were saying, that's not possible. You cannot know God apart from the law. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, Many of you perhaps have an Aggie ring, like the one I'm wearing today, right? It's it's a ring that you, you earned. You got your 95 credit hours and then you paid for it and you went to the ring office and you got the ring and you wear it on your hand with pride. Well, what if tomorrow they decided to start allowing T-Sips to wear the ring? All right? Now, what if it, no, really, what if it happened? Clearly, many of you would be offended, right? You would be offended because it is an affront to your honor to let an outsider wear this ring. You've earned it. So let's say that you said, all right, I'm going to let them wear the ring. I'll concede that, but at least you might say if they're going to wear the ring, they need to act like an Aggie. They need to wear the maroon shirt. They need to learn the yells. They need to learn where you can walk on campus and where you can't walk on campus. They need to know the code or they shouldn't wear the ring. That's essentially what's going on in the first century church by the time Paul writes the book of Galatians. You have certain men who are saying, you cannot be related to God apart from the law. And some of them might even concede that you could be justified, that you could have eternal life through Jesus. But then they're going to come in on the back end and they're going to say, yeah, you can be justified by Jesus alone, but if you're really a class A Christian, you're going to follow the law. Without the law, we might let you get on the plane, but we're going to put you in the back of coach. We will let you play on the team, but you're going to be third string. 
And so they're coming in and they're placing all of these regulations and rules and they're going to say, if you claim to be related to God through Jesus Christ, you need to obey the law. And so that's what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. In the first two chapters, Paul deals with the issue of, does the law justify? Does it provide eternal life? And his answer to that is going to be no. Justification for eternal life is only by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. If you missed the first two chapters of Galatians and you're just picking up now, you need to go back and look at the first two chapters. Especially if you are an individual that believes you can find your way to eternal life through what you do. Paul answers that in the first two chapters by saying, no, the only way you can have eternal life and a relationship with God is by believing in what Jesus has done on your behalf, that he died for your sins and he rose again to provide that eternal life. But now when we get to chapter three, Paul begins dealing with the issue of sanctification. How do I walk with God? How do I have an ongoing relationship of faith with God? And he's going to argue through chapter 3 that it is not based on the law, that the law adds nothing to sanctification just as it added nothing to justification. Our walk with God is based upon faith and that faith is instilled in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So now we live by the law of the Holy Spirit within us and no longer by the Old Testament law. And that's where Paul is headed. Now, when we get to 3.15 to 25, the natural question that you might ask if you were a Jewish person in the first century is, well, if the law doesn't add to justification and it doesn't add to sanctification, then why do we have it in the first place? Right? Why, Why did God give it to us? We go back and we look at the Old Testament. Why did God call these people together and give them this law and say, you need to have this law And you need to obey this law. If it doesn't provide eternal life and it doesn't provide for me in terms of my sanctification, it doesn't make me inherently better, then what good is it? And that's what Paul's going to answer in 3, 15 to 25. All right, and as we look at this passage, Paul is going to give us the reasons why the law does not provide life. It does not give us the blessings of God promised to Abraham, but he's also going to explain what is the purpose of the law in the first place. And like I said at the very beginning, I don't think we're tempted to make distinction based on the Mosaic law. Nobody came in this morning with a turtle dove or a goat that they were ready to sacrifice. We don't make distinctions on that basis, but we do often set up a list of rules and regulations and we put a fence around God's holiness, just as the Pharisees, as they said, put a fence around the law. And we say, you are in and you are out based upon this list. Are those distinctions appropriate? Paul's going to argue no, and here's how he's going to do it as we look at Galatians three fifteen to 25. We begin, and Paul essentially says this, God's promises are not received through the law. God's promises are not received through the law. Look at verses 15 to 18 again. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Okay, so Paul is going all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham. And if you remember, God had promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land. He had promised Abraham that he would have a seed or descendants as vast as the stars in the sky, as many as the stars in the sky. And then that through Abraham's descendants all of the nations would be blessed. And it's this blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant that Paul particularly deals with in Galatians. 
that through Abraham's seed, all of the nations will be blessed. And here in verses 15 to 16, he goes back to Genesis 22, 18, where God says to Abraham, in your seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So right on the heels of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac, uh, he says to Abraham, look, in your seed, singular, all of the nations will be blessed. And the idea is that Abraham, through you, the world will come to know me. Now, traditionally, the Jewish people, as they interpreted this, they understood that to mean seed uh, as a collective singular, that it referred to all of the descendants of Abraham and the nations would be blessed as they obeyed the law. And their obedience to the law would bless the nation. And the objection that one might make to Paul's argument is, look, we understand you're saying that the law is not necessary for justification and for sanctification, but you've argued it on the basis of Abraham. Abraham came way before the law, but now the law is here. Doesn't it make sense to to go to the time of the law and say, now we have to obey the law? And and Paul's going to argue, no, the promise was given to Abraham irrespective of the law. And what's significant about that promise to Abraham is that it is in that promise that the nations are blessed. And Paul is going to argue that the seed here refers not to all of the descendants of Abraham as they obey the law, but it refers instead to Jesus Christ in particular, that Jesus' obedience blesses the nations, that it is through Jesus' obedience that we're related to God. So our relationship with God for justification and sanctification is based upon Jesus' obedience, the seed singular. And then in verses 17 to 18, he goes on. He says, what I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Very simply, he's saying this is an issue of God's character. If he makes a promise and then he comes back later and he adds a condition to that promise, you have to follow the law. It's no longer a promise. God gave it to Abraham by means of a promise. If somebody makes you and me a guarantee, we expect the guarantee will be fulfilled without conditions added later. I was reminded this past week of a trip that I took when I was about eight years old in third grade. My dad and I, along with some of my classmates and their parents, went to Washington, D.C. with our third grade class. It was a school trip. And uh, we had a good time seeing all of the sights. We were educated about our country as we went throughout Washington, D.C. And they had us keep a little journal. And uh, I actually found this journal in my garage this week that I kept in third grade. And I wrote down every day what we did and where we went. And uh, one of the entries in this journal says this. uh, It says, we saw the Peterson house. This is where we saw the bed that Lincoln died in. Then it says, after the Peterson house... We drove an hour to get to a place to eat dinner. At this restaurant, we got cheated. I'm eight years old as I'm writing this, but clearly my understanding was deep. We were supposed to get, we were supposed to get half price and we didn't until my dad argued our way to getting half price by stopping the line. After we ate, we got on the bus to go home. Now, I I actually remember this incident like it was yesterday. Here's what happened. We, uh, we left, uh, we left. Washington, D.C., and our bus driver said, I know a great place where we can eat, and they give deals for kids that are under a certain age. So we got in the line at this buffet, and there was a sign at the beginning of the buffet that said, kids under 12 eat half price. 
Well, when we got to the front of the line, they rang up our meal and they charged us full price for my meal. My dad just at first politely said, uh, there is a sign that says kids under 12 eat half price. Can you fix the total? And the man at the register said, oh, that doesn't apply to big groups. And uh, my dad said, well, it doesn't say that on the sign. And the guy said, well, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. And my dad said, well, no, that's not the way it is. And uh, now, looking back, I'm not advocating my dad's approach, okay? But uh, he said, that's not the way it works. That's false advertising. You need to fix it. And, and, and the guy said, we're not. And my dad said, well, let me talk to the manager. And the guy said, well, sir, can you step aside? And my dad, the Rosa Parks of bus stop, said, we're standing right here, okay, until the manager comes and he fixes it. And so my dad stood in the line and he simply said, it's false advertising to say one thing and then add a condition once we get to the front of the line. It doesn't say not for big groups. All right, that's all Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying this, it is not okay for God to make a promise and then come back in later and add a condition. You've got to obey the law. And it's an issue of God's character. For God to come in later and say, oh, by the way, in order to be related to me, in order to be really a class A Christian, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this. Okay, that's a violation of the promise. Because he promised to bless Abraham on the basis of faith in him. And ultimately, Paul's arguing on the basis of what Jesus has done on our behalf, not on the basis of the law, right? Think about it in terms of your children, if you have children. You would never consider taking your kids and giving them a a list of things by which your love would be measured. How many times you take out the trash? How many times you clean your room? How clean your ears are, right? You wouldn't do that. It would be cruel. Your relationship with that child is based on love and based on respect. And yes, you have expectations for the child, but those expectations don't determine whether they're your favorite child or the best child. You place expectations on them because you care for them and you love them and you want them to respond out of their relationship with you. That's all Paul is saying. To place conditions onto the promise and say, you're really better if you do this. That's a violation of the promise. The blessings of Abraham are not received through the law. So then, of course, the question still hasn't been answered. Why is the law there? What's it there for at all? If it doesn't add to my spirituality, why is it there? Well, that's what Paul is going to answer here in the next half of our passage. All right, what does the law do? Look at verses 19 to 22. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, so he says, first of all, the law serves to reveal our need. It reveals our need for Jesus It's interesting in verse 19, it says the law was added because of transgressions. The way that that seems to read in the original language is it was added in favor of transgressions. The idea is it actually served to increase transgressions. Romans 5 says something very similar. 
Paul says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, the the question that begs the question, did God give the law to make people sin? Well, no, The law doesn't make you a sinner. The law simply shows the sin that's already within you. Give you an illustration from my personal experience. Right as I was about to graduate college, a friend of mine happened to be living over in Europe and he offered to fly me and another friend over and we took a fun trip of Europe as a lot of college students and recent grads do and we went all over France, Germany, Luxembourg and, and we didn't have a lot of money so some of the sites that we saw were kind of out of the way, museums and sites along those lines. So one day in Germany, we went to a museum that was like a history of uh, coal mining from the 1940s to the present, something along those lines. And it, you know, it was somewhat interesting, but it wasn't one of the top spots in uh, you know, the books or anything like that. But we were enjoying it. Well, as we walked into one of the exhibits, there was kind of an exhibit of uh, some plastic you know, statues, and they had mining hats on, and there were machines, and there was a rope around them. And in front of the rope, there was a sign that said, please do not cross the rope to take pictures. Now, when we saw the sign, we actually laughed at it because it never would have occurred to us to go take a picture with a plastic miner in front of these machines, right? And, and we, we chuckled about it. And then all of a sudden, as if we were thinking with one mind, we looked at each other and we go, yeah, we got to do it. So we, <laughs> so we stepped over the line and we stood with these people and we took pictures and we took these pictures home and we went, why did we even take these pictures, right? Now, did the sign itself make us rebellious? Of course not. The sign simply incited something that was already within us to break a rule, right? That's what the law does. It doesn't make you a sinner. But Paul says it in Romans 7, the law tells me don't covet. And all of a sudden I find that I'm aware of the covetousness that's already in my heart. And so what the law does is it serves to reveal to us that we are unholy and we are distant from God. This is why Paul talks in verses 20, uh, really 19 and 20, about the idea of mediators. The idea is this, the law had to be mediated, first through angels on God's side and then through Moses on man's side. And these mediators served to provide a buffer between me and God because I'm not holy enough to get near to him. I can't stand in his presence And so we need a mediator. We need a go-between. And that is why the law, Paul is arguing, is inferior to the promise that through Jesus Christ, by faith, we can approach God directly. Why? Because when Jesus Christ took away my sin, now I am given the holiness of God. And now his spirit lives in me. I don't have to stand far away at the foot of a mountain but I can approach God directly because he's in me. So Paul says what the law did is it serves to provoke our need. Verses 21 and 22, he says, well, then if that's the case, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Does it serve at cross purposes? He says, no, may it never be. If a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Ultimately, the law just proves that the law cannot save us and reveals our need for Jesus. 
And if a a Jewish man or woman prior to the coming of Christ understood the law appropriately, they would understand that the law was to reveal the holiness of God and reveal my sin. And something in me was supposed to go, God, I cannot approach you because I lack holiness. I need you to save me. Paul says that's why we need Jesus. The law serves to reveal our need. And secondly, the law serves to keep sin in check until the time when Christ would come. Verses 23 to 25 says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor or pedagogue to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogue. All right, what's the idea? The law serves like bumpers on the bowling alley. If you don't know how to bowl and you roll the ball and there's no bumpers, it's going to go right in the gutter. But if the bumpers are there for a beginning bowler, the ball goes over here, it can't go too far this way, can't go too far this way, and it's going to hit some pins. The law serves similarly. It says, no, don't go this way, don't go this way. The illustration that Paul uses, if you have an NAS, it says tutor. If you've got another translation like the ESV or the NIV, it might say something along the lines of uh, pedagogue or uh, babysitter or something along those lines. The the Greek word is uh, pedagogue, and the idea is not so much like a teacher, it's more like a nanny. And in Greek homes, what they would do is, starting when a child was about six or seven, once they were weaned and they were no longer constantly taken care of by their mother, uh, to the time that they hit puberty, they would have a nanny in the home. And they called this a, a pedagogue. And the, the role of the pedagogue was to make sure that the child ate their vegetables, to make sure that the child didn't go places he or she wasn't supposed to go. They served, in essence, as a, as a surrogate parent of sorts until the child hit puberty. This is the way that Plato describes the pedagogue. He says, just as no sheep or other witless creature ought to exist without a herdsman, so children cannot live, live without pedagogues, nor slaves without masters. And of all wild creatures, the child is the most intractable. For, for insofar as it, above all others, possesses a fount of reason that is yet uncurbed, it is a treacherous, sly, and most insolent creature. <laughs> Guys, you, we could read this to our kids at bedtime, right? Wherefore, the child must be strapped up, as it were, with many bridles. First, when he leaves the care of nurse and mother, with pedagogues to guide his childish ignorance, and after that, with teachers of all sorts of subjects and lessons, treating him as becomes a freeborn child. On the other hand, the pedagogue must be treated as a slave, and any free man that meets him shall punish both the child himself and his pedagogue if any of them does wrong. So the pedagogue was a slave who would be held responsible for the child's behavior. We all know that you, you don't leave small children alone, unsupervised, for long periods of time. Because when you return, if the child is still alive, your home will be a mess, right? Things will be destroyed. Things will be harmed. I, I have to share this. My younger brother in particular, many of you perhaps have a child or were a child like this, that if you left him alone for any period of time, something would be dismantled or destroyed. So my parents took to placing a cowbell at the top of my brother's bedroom door so that when he woke up in the morning to leave his room, they could hear him. Ding, 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 ding. They'd go out, they'd pick him up and put him back in bed. Because if he got out, he would empty the freezer, take all the meat out, right? 
he did that, he would dismantle the toaster, another thing he did. One time he took a blue stamp of a dove and he stamped it all over everything in the house, right? For years, we had little blue doves all over the house. You could not leave him unsupervised. Now, here's the deal. He ultimately, though, grew out of that, right? We don't still place a cowbell on his door when he comes over. His wife does not hire a babysitter when she leaves. Dave ultimately grew out of that. The nanny is only necessary when the child is too immature to make decisions for himself. That's what Paul is saying about the law. The law was only necessary before the Spirit of God was living inside of you. And what the law did is it said, don't go this way, don't go this way. And it served to keep those desires in check so the nation was not destroyed, so they did not incur God's unbelievable wrath on their sin, but it kept them just enough in check until Jesus could come and take sin out of the way once and for all. But here's what he says, now that Christ has come, we don't need the nanny anymore. And so to try to place those sort of requirements on men and women in whom the Spirit of God is living is a tragedy. To say, well, in order to really be a Christian, you've got to wash your hands up to the elbow, and if it drips a certain way, you've got to rewash. You've got to make sure that you don't touch a certain person or a certain thing. You've got to make sure that you go to the tabernacle on the right days. Paul's going to say, doing those things is at odds with the Spirit. The law serves ultimately to reveal our need and then just as a nanny until Jesus can come. Again, kind of as we wrap up, I really think most of us would agree that the Old Testament law is not something we want to place on our lives anymore. But I do think some of us have a list. You've got your list of things by which you say, If you do my list, I'm going to count you in. If you don't do my list, I'm going to count you out. Maybe even count yourself in or out based on the list. So you're walking through your life thinking, gosh, I've got to have this many quiet times and this long every day, or God may not love me quite as much. I have to only listen to this. Or maybe I'm class B. Well, I raise my kids this way, and you raise your kids in a way that seems different. Mine's probably better, and I'm probably better. And so we have our list. I think the challenge that Paul is giving us is this. Certainly, there are commands, and there is obedience commanded in the Scripture for the people of God, but we do that in response to the Spirit in our lives. And what Paul's going to say later in Galatians 5, and I don't want to steal too much of the thunder from later on in Galatians, but what Paul's going to say is the deeds of the flesh are evident. You know what they are. And the fruit of the Spirit is these things. You know what they are. So you don't need this system by which you judge spirituality. You follow the voice of the Spirit. You don't need the nanny anymore. Let me challenge us this week. Throw out your list. I mean that very literally. Go home and think through, write down, what is my list? What are the things that I say, yeah, this makes me better? We probably all have them. And then take the list and throw it away to remind ourselves that life and relationship to God 
is found in faith in Jesus Christ as we walk by the Spirit, not based on the list. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. We want to live in obedience to you, but in obedience that is filled with the Spirit and not based upon dead commandments that we create. Father, we do thank you that even in your law, we see the holiness of God and we see our need for Jesus. We pray we would rely upon Jesus. Father, forgive us for the times that we've chosen to make distinctions based upon things that are not of Christ. And teach us to have your eyes as we look at ourselves and as we look at those around us. God, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.